It's only fit that I would reveal what number one is. I can't verify that. I've never met the man. You don't have to meet him, Matthew. You just have to look at what he did. Hello and welcome to our Gem Pursuit. My name is Matthew Weldon and I'm joined in our magical and mysterious pursuit through the world of antique and vintage jewellery by my trusty co-host, Elise Ketcher. Hello, Elise. Hi, everyone. So we are about to launch into a brand new series with a deadly theme, all of which will be revealed shortly. However, I suppose first to get you in the mood for the new series, we thought it'd be a good time to look over our previous 50 episodes. Hard to believe we've done 50 now. Uh, and suggest our personal favourite five so you can listen back to the best of the best. So, Matthew, when we were going through five episodes to choose for this rundown, I guess, of our favourites, it was difficult. It was really difficult. Oh, it was so difficult because, you know, obviously we've done seven series to date and all of them are completely different. So, I mean you weren't exactly comparing like with like. Some of the episodes were interviews with different experts and specialists on certain areas of jewellery. Other ones were ones that we went to exhibitions. Some were ones that we had a kind of a deep dive discussion about a particular area. So to narrow it down to five was tricky. Yeah, and it's like 10% of all of the episodes that we've done so far. So it's like crazy to think, okay, let's kind of narrow it down to five of our favorites. It's a difficult task. But starting off with number five, my personal favorite episode, and of course my favorite gemstone as well, was the Emerald episode. Emerald was a a really good one, Leith. But why was that one your particular favorite? Well, I don't want to give away too much, right? So these are just little snippets for you so that you can go back and listen to the actual episodes. But I'm going to give you the highlight of what one of my favorite parts of the episode was. But if you want to listen to it, please go to, again, the description of the podcast and there'll be a link that you can go to this particular episode. But I really love in the Emerald episode, we talk a lot about... Colombia, and in particular, when the Spanish arrived to Colombia and they come there with this thought of a new world, and they can see that there's riches there that are beyond their imagination. And one stone in particular, of course, emerald captures their special attention. And in this episode, it talks about how the Incas or the original Colombian people, how they protected the stone because they thought it was a god and they thought it was alive. I love this particular episode for that reason. And there's also an additional thing about how the stone is carved. So please go and listen to the episode. This one is one of my particular favorites. Yeah. I mean, I love that story about the Colombian and the the Incas, how they protected the emerald. And even when it came to gold, of course, which was another episode in in the gem pursuit, they happily actually would give gold to the Spanish conquistadors in exchange for different things. But no matter what they did, they wouldn't give away the locations of their emeralds, how they they polished them, how they carved them. It was too precious to them 
And I think from a gemological point of view, what we know now, of course, they didn't know at the time, is that emeralds, they almost have a glow and because there are high levels of chromium within emeralds. And of course, not knowing what that would be, if you saw an emerald, either this stone glowing in the daylight from within, it would, of course, attribute. You, if you didn't understand it, you would think it is mystical. Yeah. So they thought it was alive. They literally thought the stone was alive, that it contained a god, their god. Like, it's so interesting to see how gemstones were viewed by different people. And this particular episode really does bring it home to you how precious this gemstone was to a specific people. And that's why I love it so much. At number four, completely different type of episode, but one of my favorites, Elise, was the Alma Feel episode in season six, episode three, Women Jewelry Designers Who Influenced the 20th Century. That was the name of, of that series that we did. And Alma Feel, I think, was a super interesting one because we actually had a direct connection to Alma Field, who was a designer in the Fabergé workshop. I suppose not only a designer, but when you think of Fabergé, sure, the first thing that comes to your mind, what is it? It's got to be a Fabergé egg, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's such a famous jewellery house that when you look at the grand scheme of jewellers in the world, it was only actually open for such a short amount of time but had such a huge impact on the jewelry world. Like most people who don't really have any knowledge of jewelry will still know what a Fabergé egg is, or they would have heard about it. They would have seen it in modern day films. They would have seen it in the news. It's one of those kind of long lasting things that people in pop culture everywhere kind of know about. It was mentioned recently in Peaky Blinders, even, for example. So So, there you go. But will be mentioned throughout our lives. And after we're gone, it will still continue on because of the exquisite work. But Alma Field, that particular episode, there was one particular story that actually didn't have very much to do with Alma Field, but had to do with the person that we interviewed. And that was Ula Tillinda, who was so gracious enough to number one, allow us to interview her and number two, allow us into her home for that interview. And so it was such a great experience learning about those childhood memories that she had about Alma Field, but also about her time in the jewelry industry. Yeah. And, and, you know, when we traveled and we, we took Gem Pursuit to Helsinki in Finland to interview Ula and uh, we talked to Alma Field, who was actually her art teacher, believe it or not, in school, which is pretty incredible to think that your art teacher designed a Fabergé egg. I mean, that would garner a certain amount of respect, I think. But but yeah, the story, it was, you know, the story that we loved in, in that episode, especially, wasn't actually anything to do about uh, Alma Field. It was just a really nice story that Ula Tilder had when she was younger, growing up in a jewellery household. It was at the very start of the interview. I remember well, <laughs> she said that she was in her father's study or little office at home or whatever. And uh, she saw these, what looked like sweets on a table, different coloured red and blue sweets. And being the inquisitive child that she was, that you kind of need to be inquisitive to work in the jewellery business. She went over and, and thought they were sweets and ate them. Obviously, they weren't. So 
the story had a happy ending. That's how we and the sweet. Well, it had an ending. It had an ending anyway, Matthew. I don't know if it was happy. They were recovered, but um, you know, not easily. I wouldn't say. Yeah. Well, for Burma rubies or cashmere sapphires, you'd make the extra effort. I think. (laughs) Uh, Yes. No, that was a great. That was a great episode. Let's move on to episode three in our countdown and we've chosen, and this one was a hard one because we both loved this episode, the gold episode, but there was two stories in it that we really liked, but we've decided we'd leave one out so that you want to go and have a listen. Again, you can, you can listen to it in the link that's in the descriptions for the podcast, but this particular episode on gold featured a little snippet about the lost city of gold known as El Dorado, which we find out in the episode actually wasn't a city at all, Matthew. No, and it's you know words that we all kind of have heard, but maybe mightn't depreciate where they actually come from. We've all heard El Dorado, and maybe some of us might subconsciously put two and two together and think that's related to gold. But yeah, no, again, in South America, the Spanish have gone there and they've heard of this fantastic city of gold and obviously looking for this precious metal, which was of great value in the Spanish empire at the time. So they went searching for this place as they thought it was anyway. You know, they even heard that there was a lake there that, you know, had so much gold in it that they actually went to the extremes of draining this particular lake and yes, they did find gold there, of course, because gold can be found in what's called alluvial deposits, which are, they go down rivers and they can they can pool then or form in quantities in the lake. But obviously that wasn't the city they were looking for as it turned out. Yeah. So when we're, when we're talking about in that episode, El Dorado itself, it, like translated into Spanish means the gilded one, the gilded one. So I guess like in their minds, they thought, oh my gosh, the gilded one, the gilded city, there's a place here that is just filled with gold. But the gilded one was actually a person. It was a chief. Every time a chief was elected from this particular tribe, they would get gold dust and completely cover their chief in gold dust and also cover him in gold pieces. So whatever they had that was gold would then be put on their chief. And then the chief would be dipped into the lake as kind of like a sacrifice to the lake god. And so it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of way to kind of show number one, the lost in translation kind of thing that's going on there with colonization, of course, as well, and also greed. So it's a, it really is an episode that kind of delves into a number of different points about gold, but why we've always had this, like as humans, this innate obsession with gold. And it's because of the, the patina, the way that it looks, the way that it that it kind of looks like the sun is captured in it and the metallic form that it takes. And this particular episode is a great way for you to understand all the way back in history that even back then, we're still on the hunt for gold today. Like it still hasn't lost its allure for us. It, it doesn't matter 
it's human nature to be attracted to this metal. So it's a really fabulous episode, but that in particular, the quest for El Dorado actually was a quest for a person. They didn't even know it. The link for that particular episode, again, is in the descriptions, in the podcast. Please go have a listen if you want to know more. Yeah, fantastic episode in number three there, El Dorado, the Gilded One. But moving on to number two in our countdown, I saw another person who is really influential in jewellery design. Even today, her designs are being used as inspiration in many of the big, big jewellery houses. And that is a lady called Suzanne Belperon, season six, episode two. And I know, Elise, she's a particular favourite of yours. I mean, I like, what can we say about Susan Belperon that, you know, is going to sum up her? Nothing. Really, this episode delves into a lot because we have a wonderful interview with an archivist who has all of her archives. And that was a fabulous experience that we had when we went to Paris. Matthew, do you remember when we were with Olivier? I remember Olivier. I remember we went into his shop to meet him called La Golconde in Paris and obviously named after the Golconda mines where some of the best diamonds come from in India. Yeah, I met, we met him upstairs in a very small, hot room. I, re- I remember that. And, <laughs> it was hot. But he it was incredible because Olivier Baron actually had a lot of the, the, the moulds that Suzanne Belperant would have used to make her jewellery or design her jewellery. So, And her phrase, you know, her iconic phrase was, my style is my signature. And for anyone who knows a little bit about jewellery, they'll know that a lot of jewellery houses, when they make something, much like an artist, if they have like a painting, they'll actually put their name on the bottom or they'll, they'll sign it. And in jewellery, it's exactly the same thing. But Suzanne Elperon, she was so cool. You know, she just said, you know, I don't even sign my pieces. You should know their mind just by looking at them, which, you know, in terms of today, authenticating it, it makes it really difficult but Olivier has those moulds and those drawings, which were missing for, I think they were missing for the guts of 60, 70 years before they turned up again. But that, that's the thing. They thought that she had burnt her full archives when she had quit the business. They thought that she had taken all of her drawings, everything and burnt them, but they were actually hidden away in an apartment in Paris. So it was an absolute find of a century to get not only those archives, but Olivier also had all of her personal letters. So we find out a lot about the actual woman herself. And in this particular episode, we learn about how she was able, how she was entangled in World War II, how she was able to help those that she loved that were, you know, under attack by the Nazis and how she was also able to save a jewellery business during World War II as well. So she is a fascinating character in history, not only in jewellery history, but in history itself. Literally one of my favourite episodes and it couldn't have been left out in the countdown for sure. Definitely couldn't have. And of course, once again, the link to that particular episode can be found in the description of this podcast. 
so at number one, we have the story of some wild, exacting, and pretty extreme standards behind one of the world's most famous jewelry brands of all time. But before we reveal that, if you are enjoying our stories, please do follow our podcast so you can enjoy our brand new series, which is all about the dead arts. Okay, that makes it sound a little bit morbid, but it's not. Don't worry. (laughs) When we're talking about the dead arts in the next season, we're actually talking about things like craftsmanship that can no longer be done, like skills that were created in a long lost era, right? So we're going to be talking about things that you see in antique jewelry that you no longer see today and how they were accomplished and the craftsmen who were doing it. So we're really looking forward to this season. Stay tuned because it is going to be starting in October. Do join us. All you need to do is click follow on your podcast player right now. And it's only fit that I would reveal what number one is in this countdown, Matthew. And it is, of course, the amazing, the fabulous Fabergé episode, which of course talks about my lovely Carl. Your lovely Carl. Yeah. I mean, I can't verify that. I've never met the man. We're a few years in between. You don't have to meet him. You don't have to meet him, Matthew. You just have to look at what he did. Well, you can imagine what it would be like to meet him based on the pieces that he created or was, you know, in management of creation anyway, because look, Fabergé, it's a name we all know, but the reason why we know it, I think is really important and why this is one of my favorite episodes. And both, we, we didn't really have a debate on this one, you know, this, no. and there's some honorable mentions we could get there, right? But this room stood out. And the story that I think could summarize this one the best, right? We talk about Gem Pursuit, where myself and Elise, we're always looking for, you know, the best jewelry that we can find. Uh, and we spent so much time doing it. And to get that jewelry, there has to be, obviously, nature has to create the basic components, the diamonds, the sapphires, you know, the gemstones, the, the metals. But it requires someone with exacting standards to actually take those pieces and make them into a gem, something truly special. And Carl Fabergé had this. And what he did, he had his desk and one side he had a stamp, right? So the goldsmiths, the enamelers, obviously Fabergé, super well known for superb enameling. Even some of their quality can't be replicated today. People literally don't know how. Uh, and in the dead arts, I think, you know, we're going to be talking about that a bit. So we had a stamp. If you brought him something and he looked over it, scrutinized every millimeter, and he thought that was good, you got the stamp. And that was approved, went to stock, and Bob's your uncle, right? But on the flip side, on the other side of the table, there was a hammer, right? And if he inspected it, if some element of that particular piece didn't reach the required standard, he would literally smash it right in front of you. I mean, there's no delicate way of putting that, right? So the the balance between what made it and what didn't, like, it just had to be perfect. And those standards, to me, are what he implemented them. And that's what lifted Fabergé, I believe. Because the other goldsmiths obviously did other work, but to get the Fabergé mark, they had to pass that test. Yeah, I mean, this is what I love about him, right? This is why I love Carl Fabergé. He was 
completely immersed in his work. And he was so such a perfectionist, such a perfectionist that that is the reason why his name is uttered throughout the jewelry industry for the rest of history, right? It's because of that attention to detail. It doesn't exist anymore. We can't find it. There's nobody who has those standards anymore. And this particular episode will completely capture your imagination because of his character. It's incredible. And you know what? They always say, you know, don't meet your heroes. So it's probably a good thing that I don't meet him because I don't want to get the hammer. You'd totally be fangirling him and it'd be like, honestly, go away. I'm trying to work. You're annoying. And I I have to say, I have never seen the least fangirl anybody. (laughs) But no, I mean, you'll listen to the episode, right? You'll listen to the episode. Hear some of the other stories. Hear how he was able to actually revolutionize the way people look at jewelry instead of looking at it as a tangible asset and looking at, at it as a piece of art. And he was the reason behind that. It wasn't any other jeweler in his time period who did what he did. It really was a turning point in jewelry creation. And, you know, he opened up the door for people like Susan Bell Perron to think in a different way and other jewelry artists to think in a different way. And it really began with his thought process, in my opinion. No, I think you're right. I think, Elise, you hit the nail on the head on something really important for anyone who's interested in jewelry. One, that thing that really struck me there was you can value jewelry in two ways, right? And when it transcends from one of these ways to the other, it's when you really reach these gem qualities. And that that is, you value them based on their intrinsic parts. So the diamond, the gold, sapphire, the, the, the demantoid, garnet, whatever it is, you value it on the parts. But if you're valuing jewelry based on the craft, the skill and the beauty, that's jewelry on a different level. That's just not, it's not just a ring that, a diamond that's being held by a ring. It's a piece of jewelry. And as you said, he, he really opened the door for loads of people in that. And just, just to give you an idea of why they're so valuable today and why they're so rare. Okay. First of all, they had to survive the Russian revolution and a hundred years to still be around today. But also I've heard reports and I, I know we discussed it in the episode that anywhere from 15 to 20 pieces got the hammer before one got the stamp. So, I mean, it's, yeah, as you said, exacting standards. And we don't have them anymore. No, because people would try sell the castaways, but he just wouldn't take it. It was perfection or nothing. And that's why we love him. Remember, if you're looking to listen to any of our top five, you can go to the descriptions for the podcast. And in there, it will have a link to each of the episodes. Thank you all very much for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, we have notes on what we spoke about with links and anything else you might need in the description area of this podcast. It also includes a link to our Instagram page where you can see pictures of what we're talking about also. My thanks to my trusty co-host, Elise Ketcher. Thank you very much, Elise. Thanks, Matthew. And our podcast producer, dustpod.io. Until next time, from me, Matthew Weldon, see you very soon.